It's even going to purchase a new heavens and a new earth. As the hymn Joy to the World says, uh, his uh, redemption goes far as the curse is found. And in this series on David, we're seeing it is pretty comprehensive there. Covenant succession for our families, that it's not just redeeming us, but it's redeeming our children, our great-grandchildren. And many generations, we can lay claim to God's promises there. And uh, we, last week and this week, are looking a little bit at uh, the application to even things like politics. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want to read verses 1 through 13. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Amen. Father God, we come uh, to continue to worship you as we respond to this, your scripture. And I pray that you would anoint me and anoint this, your people, as... Uh, we seek to understand what your word has to say for times that we live in. We love you, we bless you, and it is our glory uh, to study your word. And so we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. One of the things in the book of First Samuel that I suspect at least some of you can identify with is how frustrating... It can be to see how long it takes to get rid of bad candidates, okay, bad uh, politicians. And it was certainly a long time before they got rid of Saul, King Saul. He was in power for 40 years, and his dynasty, with his son reigning, continued for another seven and a half years uh, after that. 
Now, the first two years of Saul's reign were actually pretty good. It was a decentralized government. He acted like the judges, probably because of the incredible influence of Samuel in his life at that point. But that still makes for 45 frustrating years. See, God rejected Saul from being king in chapter 13, way back at the beginning of his third year in reign, but nothing happens. He's rejected, but nothing happens. Then he's rejected again in chapter 15, and uh, this would be his 25th year of reign, and still nothing happens. And it's very frustrating to, to some of God's people. Then in chapter 16, David is anointed, but Saul continues to rule over the south for another 15 years. And like I said, the dynasty of Saul continues to reign in the north for another 22 and a half years after David is anointed as king. Waiting for God to fix politics can be excruciatingly, frustratingly slow unless... You look behind the scenes and you realize, hey, God's been working all along. He's not absent. In fact, God is using the very politics that you hate to bring discipline to his people and wake people up to their need of God's grace in this department and to make people hate the evil fruits that flow from humanism and uh, to um, raise up a remnant who is willing to pray willing to fight, and in many other ways to be working these things together for the good of the church and for the glory of God. And so when you realize that behind the scenes, God is always working toward victory, you don't get as frustrated, at least not as frequently you don't get as frustrated. And uh, sometimes you might even get excited that uh, what's going on in America right now is absolutely needed to wake the church up and uh, to make her uh, begin to conform to the Word. The fact of the matter is that in chapter 16, the people don't deserve liberty. <laughs> they are not worthy of liberty, and uh, they're not ready for it. Even the, the, the magistrates are not. They're puppets under Saul's hand. In verse 4, you see these magistrates there that are local magistrates. They're scared to death of Saul. They're not about to do uh, their duty in terms of protecting their citizens. But like Christians today... The most important thing was they were not ready to take the biblical steps needed to bring that country back into the liberties that uh, God had for them. And so what God was doing is he was using Saul as a tool in his hand to purify the church, to make the church get such a bad taste in their mouth over humanistic politics that they were are finally, eventually willing to go back to the Bible and to submit uh, to magistrates who really would rule by the Bible. And that's what I'm hoping uh, is happening right now in America, that God is kind of rubbing our noses in uh, the, the messes that are coming, but He's doing it to advance the victory of King Jesus in our hearts. He's much more interested in our holiness than He is our comfort. And to me, that's an encouraging thing. Now, in your outlines, I've given 10 additional reasons why political change can be very, very slow, and the first reason is that God's message about Saul being disqualified didn't get down to the people. Verse 1 indicates this is yet another message from the Lord. Now, the Lord said to Samuel. Now, let me explain about a prophet. When a prophet receives something from the Lord, he infallibly receives it, and he infallibly communicates that word. He is not moved by his own will at all during the prophecy. Afterwards, he might. He might say things that are just inappropriate, 
But as he is prophesying, he is completely, 100% moved by God's Spirit. So 2 Peter 1.20 says, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Samuel's failure that I'm going to be talking about is not in any way related to his prophecy. He perfectly brought the prophecy to Saul. His failure comes in the fact that he does not always like God's Word. He does not always seek to implement God's Word that he has infallibly received. And in this chapter, we're going to be looking at fear and other reasons uh, that made it so that Samuel really did not bring God's Word to the people or the other civil magistrates who could do something about it. In chapter 13, Samuel knows that Saul is rejected. He talks to Saul privately, but this message is never distributed to the other people. It's not acted upon by Samuel. Instead, he goes home. God sends Samuel again in chapter 15, and Samuel gives his message about God's revelation to Saul all by himself. He's apart from the other people, the text indicates. So once the prophesying is over, Samuel could have acted upon that word, and he could have told Saul, okay, I want you to step down, called in the other Uh, officers who were there and said, God has just revealed that Saul is rejected. I'm asking for him to step down. I'm asking for you now to endorse the new guy that God's already chosen. He could have done that, but he failed to do that. Uh, In fact, I want you to look at chapter 15, chapter 15 and verse 30, where Saul is scared to death by this uh, message that comes from Samuel. And he begs Samuel saying, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So he's off here somewhere talking to Saul, and he says, return with me. They're going to want to know what's happening, you know. Return with me and honor me before these judges. Because Saul knows that if wind, if the people get wind of the fact that God has rejected him, this could be his last day, you know, as the president of, of that nation, as king. But So what he's doing is he's wanting Samuel to endorse him in front of the elders. What Samuel was doing here is the exact opposite of what God had infallibly revealed should have happened. By honoring whom God has dishonored, he's disobeying God. By accepting whom God has rejected, he is disobeying God. So he had a perfect prophecy. He was not living in terms of that prophecy. And so when... He comes and he worships together with Saul. He's endorsing him spiritually. And when he comes and with Saul, he cuts Agag to pieces. He's endorsing Saul politically. Okay, that's what's going on. The message of God's rejection never gets to the people so that they can act upon it. And I believe this is the primary reason for the failure of the church to make any difference in America. Do Christians in Washington, D.C. read their Bibles? I'm sure they do. But the Bible never gets into politics. In fact, you hear many of these people say, well, my personal opinion is this, but I don't mix religion with politics, right? They never allow it to get into their politics, which means automatically it is a humanistic rule that they are engaging in. And then the churches, they endorse these candidates and say, Yeah, because this person's a Christian, and maybe he has one or two principles, he's pro-life or something, that we need to endorse that person, but they're short-circuiting the power of the Word of God. 
The majority of Americans call themselves Christians, but both conservatives and liberals have a Bible-less and a grace-less politics. They're just willing to operate independently. And so what I think was happening back here and what was ha- is happening in America is that God is rubbing our noses in the mess of Saul until we learn to hate that mess so bad that we say we can't stand humanistic politics anymore. We want to go back to the perfect law of liberty. I think that may be what happen- is happening today. I pray that that's the case. Now, the second reason was a misplaced loyalty in a God-rejected candidate. Verse 1 again. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Now we're not told all of the reasons that Samuel wished God would accept Saul. Commentators have made all kinds of guesses. Some have said maybe there's personal reasons. Maybe it was a friendship with Saul. Maybe he admired some of the the, the good characteristics. He had been working with Saul after all, and he did have some good characteristics. Others said, well, maybe it's it's a public issues that he's mourning over. He doesn't want a civil war, and it's just tearing him up inside to think what will happen if anybody takes action against Saul. Uh, others have guessed that maybe uh, he, he values the fact that Saul has been an incredible warrior. He's won battle after battle against the Philistines. They're a danger. We need somebody in politics. We're not told. These are all guesses by commentators. But what is certain, what is certain is that God disapproves of Samuel's loyalty to Saul and his grieving over God's rejection of Saul. On that, the commentators are agreed. And in our own day, it's very easy to allow loyalty to a party or loyalty to a candidate to blind us to what the Scripture says about that candidate's positions. In the last election, I was absolutely astonished at the various candidates that Christians endorsed And I'm thinking, are they blind? I mean, what are they seeing here? There's so many of God's qualifications for civil magistrates that are just being ignored, run roughshod over. Blind loyalty uh, has allowed many Christians to simply be manipulated by politicians in election after election. What we need to be doing is saying, Lord, I am loyal to you first and foremost. I want to study the Scriptures. I want to understand them. I want to know what do you want me to vote for in this election? So grieving over the wrong thing can be, uh, can be something God is offended at, over. Not, grieving over, you know, maybe a political party that's lost or, or, or uh, grieving over a candidate. We should be grieving that God's word is not triumphing in D.C. Third failure was a lack of interposition. Now, we've already sort of looked at that in chapter 15 this morning. But look again at verse 1. God said, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Now, God's not saying, uh, well, there's, he's, missing a few, uh, he's missing a few qualifications, but you can work with Saul and we can kind of fudge things up. He says, no, he's rejected. I don't want him reigning over Israel any longer. Each time the word came to Samuel, God made it clear, God does not want Saul to reign anymore. And the commentators have pointed out that this in the Hebrew is a very severe rebuke because there's a sharp, sharp contrast between God's uh, activities and Saul's activities. I myself versus you. And there's another Hebrew grammatical thing in there. This is a sharp rebuke against Samuel's behavior. And I believe he was rebuked for two things. First, his endorsement of Saul 
in chapter 15, and second, for disagreeing with God's rejection of Saul. Now, that's kind of scary to think about when you think of all of the, the people that have been endorsed by Christians in politics in America, who they've set their hopes upon. Now, you might think I'm being a little bit hard on Samuel here because he's just a peon, right? No, remember last week we saw in chapter 7, verse 15, Samuel continued to be a judge till the day that he died. The whole pattern that was set up in the verses following that is he was supposed to mentor Saul. He was supposed to be the dominant of a co-regency. And when he died, then Saul would completely inherit the kingdom. That is not what happened. Uh, Samuel was in a position where he could very easily have set Saul aside and said, no, God wants another person. We're going to bring another person in. He could have engaged in interposition, but he was fearful. Now, some of you may have never heard the, the term interposition before, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this because it's almost never talked about, and I think it is an important topic that we need to discuss. To interpose means simply to come between one or more people or between two bodies, or between a body and a person. Um, in theology, we speak of a mediator, very similar concept. And so, when it came to redemption, well, the hymn by Robertson, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it talks about interposition. It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed, his precious blood. So Christ's blood came between us and the Father's wrath. It protects us from the Father's wrath. By the way, liberals take that phrase right out of their hymn books. I've been through several liberal churches at weddings, and they always take that, that phrase out because they don't believe in the wrath of God, number one, and they don't believe in interposition, uh, number two. But very literally, Jesus came between the Father's wrath and us and protected us from judgment. And so there's a Christocentric aspect to interposition that I think absolutely has to be injected into politics. We've got to understand everything in life theologically. Uh, every magistrate needs to see himself as a servant to Jesus, the great magistrate, you know, the king of all kings, the great interposer. And we need to be praying that Christ's interposition as a priest and his interposition as a king would come into politics. Jesus is the only one that can stand between our nation's destruction from God's wrath and uh, between us, yeah, between us and God's wrath. And so really we need his grace in life. Now let me just give you a little bit more background on this. Uh, human interposition can be by an individual, a church, a magistrate, it can come in a number of ways. And in terms of states' rights, here is a definition of interposition from Black's Law Dictionary. Interposition, the doctrine that a state, in the exercise of its sovereignty, may reject a mandate of the federal government deemed to be unconstitutional or to exceed the powers delegated to the federal government, unquote. And he gives several other examples, but this really is the middle ground between an abject, servile submission to tyranny on the one hand, or a rebellious chaos on the other hand. And a lot of people don't understand this. They go off in one extreme or uh, in the other, but the Bible says, no, there is a middle ground where we can be pushing forward justice uh, in a society. The American War for Independence, 
That was not a revolution. I refuse to call it a revolution. It was a lawful war. It was lawfully ordained civil magistrates who were interposing themselves between citizens who were being abused and the King of England and the Parliament of England. Okay, that was interposition that was going on. Well, having defined that, I want you to turn with me back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I want you to see that this lack of will to engage in interposition began at least 25 years earlier. 1 Samuel 8, uh, verses 1 through 3. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And it was precisely this injustice of Samuel's sons that led to their request for a king. Now, last week we saw why it was that God was really angry and upset with their request. It was not because these magistrates engaged in interposition. Uh, It was because they wanted to get rid of God's law. They didn't think God's ways worked. They wanted a king just like the nations, the pagan nations all around them had. So they should have engaged in interposition, but bringing these magistrates back to the law of God or saying, uh, get out. Uh, They did not do that. Now, Samuel himself was at fault here. We would never have been in the mess that we were at if Samuel had interposed himself because he was the judge over all of Israel. He had appointed these sons as local magistrates. So if he appointed them, he had the power to impeach them as well. But he wasn't willing to do that. Okay, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a background here to what's going on. So the Elders' interposition was a wrong and evil interposition so that we don't think, hey, interposition's a magic bullet. It's not. It can go in bad directions. It can go in good directions. Samuel is rebuked for failing to give interposition as a warning to us we ought not to ignore the subject. It's a very important subject. So let me give you just a few examples because we've, we've never talked about this before, I don't think. Let me give you a few examples of godly interposition in the Bible. Joab, he was really upset when David wanted him to do a census of Israel, which, by the way, was far less intrusive than our our present government's uh, census. But he knew this would bring God's judgment. God did not want this to happen, so he rebukes David, and he says, far be it from you to do it. That's one kind of interposition. It wasn't successful, but at least it was a godly attempt. Okay, here's another Levitical city of Libna uh, was a city in Judah. It seceded from Judah because the incredible tyranny under the king of Judah, Jehoram. And that's one of many other kinds of interposition to protect your citizens. And it was successful. They remained independent from Judah for the whole duration of their history. It was a city of pastors, Libna. Now, they continued to pastor all over the place, but they said, we're not going to sit under the rule of Judah any longer. Secession is always a right of any governmental unit. Uh, Rahab's hiding of the spies was a godly form of individual interposition. So you can see it's not just a magistrate uh, who can do this. Uh, Interposition can be anyone stepping in between a tyrant and the citizens. And that's what she's doing. She's protecting some people from the tyranny of the king of um, Jericho. And so Corey Tamboom would be another example of that. Their family 
was interposing themselves between the Nazis and the Jews that they were trying to protect. doesn't even have to be a magistrate. Uh, in America, there have always uh, uh, been examples of many kinds of interposition, but there's sideways where different branches of the same government interpose themselves. There have been occasions where the Supreme Court has said that a power grab by the executive was unconstitutional and it could be lawfully resisted. Now, there have been presidents as well, like Andrew Jackson, who have interposed themselves and said what the Congress has passed is unconstitutional and we're not going to abide by that. Of course, Congress has returned the favor, haven't they, back and forth. But those are various kinds of interposition. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. But churches can do it too. When Ambrose excommunicated the emperor Theodosius in 359 A.D., he was engaging in a very unique kind of interposition. What had happened is Theodosius had murdered a whole bunch of people in a very unlawful way, and uh, he came under discipline. Well, the king came up to the church, was going to force his way in, force the, the pastor to give him communion, and Ambrose stood up to him and just reamed him out and said, if you value your soul, you may burn in hell for all of eternity. I mean, he really poured it out on this emperor. He said, you better repent. Well, the emperor was shaken, and he came to repentance. It took a while before they removed the excommunication that came on that emperor. But the emperor was so profoundly moved by this, he, he said, I don't want this to ever happen again. Ambrose, would you help me rewrite the laws of Rome from biblical law? There's all kinds of godly examples down through history of interposition. This is not some weird, whacked-out thing. This is a biblical concept. And the book of 1 Samuel defines interposition. It gives limits to interposition. It says what this kind of a person can do, what this kind of a person cannot do. There's all kinds of limits. And if you do not understand the doctrine of interposition, you don't even understand the history of America or the history of England. Magna Carta. Magna Carta was a marvelous example of interposition. Here you had a whole bunch of clergy got together with the nobles of the land, and the clergy gave an exposition. What does the Bible say? Are the limits, and what can we do in interposition? The nobles said, we'll back you up on this. They went to King John, and they told King John, either you sign the Magna Carta, or you're out of here. You're history. Okay, now he didn't get deposed. He actually signed that document. He later on reneged on it. But this was an example of interposition very similar to what happened with Athaliah. She was uh, deposed and actually executed, and Josiah was put on the throne. But it was the clergy and the, and the civil magistrates uh, who got together. Now, there's so much more I cannot get into. There are books I can recommend written in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s that talk about interposition. And when you understand the rich background in the Bible on interposition, that it's an absolute mandate, it's one of the fundamental responsibilities of the magistrate, then you can see when God spoke to Samuel and he said, I don't want Saul ruling anymore. He did it in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 16. He's expecting Samuel to do something about it. Samuel is reluctant, out of fear, who knows what things, or out of loyalty. He does not do what is his responsibility to do. Now, I think a lot of change in America for the better has been slow because the church 
Christians are not using all of the biblical means that are at their disposal. There's so many creative means that are there. Can you imagine what would happen if every state in the union stood up to the federal government and says, nah, we are not submitting to this. Incredible things could happen. Now, there'd be some evil things that would happen because some states would be interposing themselves on behalf of wicked people, right? But there would be a lot of good things that could happen uh, as well. Okay, there's a fourth reason that I see in these verses. It's a failure to even consider unelectable candidates that are men after God's own heart. Verse 1, God says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, how unlikely is that? David doesn't have an army. Okay, he's young. He's totally unknown. He's poor. He comes from a very insignificant town. He's not from the noble class. He has absolutely no political connections. This is ridiculous to even think that David, you know, could be a king. Even his father didn't consider him kingly material. His brothers certainly didn't. Chapter 17 makes that clear. They're really upset. Even after they know he's been anointed as king, they're upset with David. They, they just think he's an upstart. Too many times, humans look past those who are biblically qualified because of these externals. Oh, this person hasn't served, you know, and is a governor. Or this person doesn't have powerful connections. He's not politically connected. He doesn't have, he doesn't have money. They're just not electable. And I think there's a lot of slow progress or even regress in America because Christians are only willing to vote for those who are electable. Okay? They're, they're, they're not looking at things through God's eyes. If every Christian would start voting by seeking the mind of the Lord in Scripture, Lord, who do you want me to vote for? I think revolutionary changes could happen. But the citizens and the leaders in chapters 8 through 16, for the most part, they're just thinking what is possible with men, not what is accepted by God. Which means they're not operating by faith, they're operating by sight. Which means, Romans 14 verse 23 is it, tells us whatever is not from faith is sin. Now this is an important issue. You know, um, uh, the introduction to the service we don't look at evil as pervasively and as scripturally as we ought. But Scripture says this is something uh, that is a sin issue. Just serve God in politics and leave the results with Him. Now, the fifth reason for lack of solid change is fear. Okay, look at the fear. Look at the fear in verse uh, 2. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now look at the, the same fear in verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? Now here were elders who were scared to death to even be seen with Samuel because of what could happen to them from Saul. When they're asking, Are you coming peaceably? They know that he has the power of office to upset the status quo, and they're hoping he won't. They're hoping he's not going to rock the boat. Fear can paralyze citizens and magistrates from taking necessary actions. Uh, I went to lunch with a uh, uh, former governor of uh, Nebraska when he was the governor, and we talked about all kinds of things. And the history of interposition was one of the questions. 
He knew about it. He understood the case precedence in America. And I said, if you really are pro-life like you claim to be, why don't you interpose yourself and outlaw it irrespective of what the federal government says? And you could just see fear written all over his face. He, he just could not conceive of doing something like that. And one of the things that he, they'll pull away all of our money. And I said, well, don't give me your tax money then. Well, I don't think the citizens would go for it. But there was all kinds of reasons, even though he knew that was his responsibility. It can paralyze all kinds of people. It was fear of arrest that made most pastors in Nazi Germany unwilling to preach God's word to the events that needed to be preached to at that critical hour. Okay, it was the same fear that gripped good magistrates and kept them silent. It is fear of losing tax-exempt status that has made most pastors in America unwilling to preach the whole counsel of God. And it's fear of losing positions or losing elections that neutralizes many would-be reformers. Samuel had his own fears, but if Samuel had not given in to fear... And having studied extensively on Samuel's life, I can see no reason why Samuel could not have said to all of the elders, come over here, God has just revealed that Saul is no longer to reign, but he's picked another successor, a man after his own heart, and I, as the co-regent here, say that we need to go along with that. We're going to bring David on. He's going to be a co-regent with me until he grows up and he is uh, old enough to serve. Now, God sovereignly allows this. God's never uh, lost, right? God sovereignly allows this because He wants to prepare the people to be ready for true liberty. Uh, And I think uh, they were not ready at this point. Verse 4 makes that clear. Okay, the sixth reason is that we have a tendency to allow others to define the argument. Uh, Commentators point out that Saul would no doubt see Samuel's actions as treason. Now, treason's not a happy word. (laughs) And what God does is He just reframes this whole discussion. God repaints the picture as submission to Him, which automatically means that when Samuel's resisting Saul, he is submitting to God, which means the reverse is also true. It's really Saul who's not in submission to Christ. He's the one who's engaging in treason. Verse 2, But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you. And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Now, by juxtaposing a sacrifice to the Lord with the removal of Saul, what he is saying is resistance to tyrants is obedience to God, which, by the way, is one of the favorite phrases in in early America. So resisting Saul is not treason. It's Saul who's engaged in treason. We need to understand who is the king of kings. It's Christ. Who is the one who ultimately we need to obey in all things? It is Christ. Anyway, the fearful magistrates in verses 4 through 5, they're they're trying to redefine the argument as well. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, for I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, there is some subterfuge going on here because um, God's not going to make Samuel say exactly what's going to be happening. Um, If he did, these cowardly magistrates might go report on him uh, to Saul and it uh, it, it would not work out very well. 
But what I'm wanting to point out here is that the cowardly magistrates were trying to define this term peaceably in secular terms of not rocking the boat. It just reminds me of Ahab. Ahab said to Elijah, you troubler of Israel. Elijah turns it around. No, you're the troubler of Israel. If you'd obey God's laws, there wouldn't be any trouble. Okay? And, and, and so it's this whole issue of, um, uh, uh, of how he who defines the terms basically wins the argument. That's what it's about. The media loves to define terms in ways that make Christianity look stupid. Uh, Christians have got to learn to return to the Bible with their terms. I refuse uh, to call uh, pro-abortion people as pro-choice. They're baby killers. You know, they're murderers. Uh, when I'm talking with um, homosexual advocates, which we've done from time to time, uh, I don't like using the word gay. I call them homosexual or I call them sodomites. Uh, we need to use biblical terms because when we allow them to define the terms, it puts us on the defensive. And I think that's what's happened consistently. We just keep going back, back, back on the defensive. A seventh reason is that we all have tendencies to look at appearances uh, and other superficial criteria rather than whether the person is fundamentally biblical. Now, obviously, we cannot look at the heart. God was looking at the heart. We can't do that. But let's read verses 6 through 10. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I especially want you to notice the phrase, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. Okay, now, we can't see into hearts to see who's a hypocrite, who's not, but we can sure say that if objectively they're not lining up with the objective criteria of the Scripture, we should re reject him. So we don't have any infallible word as candidates are going before us. No, it's not that one. No, it's not that one. It's not that one. We've got to do a little bit of study in the infallible Scriptures, but he has given us objective criteria. In fact, it's on the back of your, of your outline what is the Bible? That was put together by Robert Fugay, I think very nicely done. What are the criteria that God wants to look at when we're evaluating, uh, evaluating candidates? Too many Christians choose candidates on pragmatic conservative principles rather than on the Bible. Now, there can be lots of disagreements on who you're going to vote for. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm just saying, ask yourself and ask the Lord, Lord, who would you vote for? Who do you want me to vote for? Does your scripture speak to this issue? And there are going to be differences amongst us in how we apply it, but we've got to try to apply it. Now, an eighth reason is that we have a tendency to ignore good candidates for office that are right under our noses. Now, this is what happened to Jesse. Verses 11 through 12. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. I remember a primary. This was before, before I became a pastor. But there was a primary in the Republican race where there were like about three or four candidates that were running. And there was one candidate who was outstanding. 
biblically in every way, he was by far ahead of all of the pack. And all of my friends agreed with me on that. He is by far the best candidate. He would make an outstanding congressman. So I said, are you going to vote for him? And they said, no, I don't think he's electable. After the election, these guys were shocked to find out that this guy that they thought was the best one got far more votes. It was an incredible lead above the one that they held their noses and voted for because they thought he was electable. And that has always stuck in my mind that if the Christians had voted for who they thought God would have picked, who was the guy who was best, he would have won by a landslide. And I think that's what we've got to constantly go back to. Our, our goal is not to please man. Our goal is not to be pragmatic. Our goal is to be as biblical as we can possibly be, pleasing the Lord in everything. So, if a Jesse comes to you, and there are plenty of Jesses out there, and they say, look, don't even consider other candidates. Here's the pool of candidates you should vote for. And none of these candidates fit. You need to ask, hey, is there a David out there? And if there's a David, vote for him, even though these people say, no, 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 he's not electable. And if there is no David out there, just leave it blank. You don't have to vote. You don't have to fill in every blank that's in there. Just leave it blank. Serve God in your voting. Leave the results up to God and just relax. Enjoy the fact that you can have some stake in saying what what can be. The ninth reason is that we've stopped looking at public officials as ministers of God who are called by God and anointed by God. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Oswald Chambers said, one man or woman who is called by God is worth a hundred who have merely been elected to work for God. Now, we certainly know that's true in the ministry. We've all seen uh, ministers who operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're gifted, they're anointed, they're passionate about what they're doing. And then we've seen other ministers who just go through the motions and they don't give any evidence that they've been called by God or empowered by God in that. Okay, I think we all know that to be true. Jeremiah blasts those hirelings who run when God has not sent them. But I think this is true in the area of civil government as well. Very few Christians even consider politics to be a calling, a service to God, and yet it is. It must be. Romans 13 uses the same word. I'm called a minister. It uses the same word, and it says that a civil magistrate is God's minister to you. He is every bit as much a minister as I am, at least if he's called by God. Isaiah 44, 8 calls Cyrus God's pastor, God's shepherd. Now, obviously, he wasn't a shepherd of a local church. He was a shepherd of the whole nation. There are many passages that indicate God calls people to civil office and anoints them with power when they are his choice. And none of the choices offered to us may be his choice, in which case you just leave it blank. But we all know politicians who have been elected, but they're not acting as ministers of God. Here was a king who had been anointed by God, who had been empowered, gifted, he knows he's called, and yet the people don't recognize him. Fifteen more years before the South accepts him, twenty-two and a half more years before the, the North calls him into power. Now, it's true. Jonathan, he already knew 
that David was called to be a king. In fact, he even gave him his royal garbs. He said that God would bless him and remember my children when you come onto the throne. He knew that. There were a minority of others who also saw David's calling, but many people had to wait. Now, here's my question. If civil magistrates need to be called, empowered, anointed, and equipped for civil office, why do so few Christians take voting for a civil magistrate as seriously as they take voting for a pastor. After all, it's the responsibility of the members, of the citizens, to discern, is God calling that person? Is God's anointing upon that person? I mean, you guys, you study the Scripture very seriously about what are the qualifications for a deacon? What are the qualifications for an elder? And you're not going to vote for a person that you are convinced does not meet those qualifications. So why do we throw out the clear biblical qualifications for a civil magistrate, throw it out the door, and we say, well, we got to have somebody in there that's at least bit better than this other person. No, vote for those that you believe are qualified. And don't vote for those that you believe God has rejected. Otherwise, you're fighting against God. You're receiving whom God wants you to reject. That's, that's really the bottom line of where it comes to. Now, we started looking at this last week as we contrasted what the people were looking for in a king and with what God is looking for in a king. And it's so frustrating to see the disparity between those two standards. But here's, here's the issue. I think we Christians are at fault. We're the cause of that disparity because we're constantly only willing to vote for those who are electable. If every Christian in this country would vote for those they're really convinced are called by God, it could make a huge difference. So we need to start studying the principles we looked at last week. And uh, if we don't, we're going to continue having that frustrating disparity. Okay, the tenth and last reason that I've included in your outlines is the character issue of others. Verse 13 says that David was anointed as king in the midst of his brothers. They knew what's going on. They said, nope, God's not chosen that one. Nope, God's not chosen this one. He's anointed as king in the midst of his brothers. And for whatever reason, even though they know he's supposed to be the king, God's prophetically said so, they don't care for David to be king. We're going to be looking in 1 Samuel 17. Eliab, oh, his attitude to David, he's just a little upstart. He's obviously irritated and upset with David, maybe because he was the first one to get passed over. We're not sure. But similar character issues in voters can poison people's minds against a perfectly good candidate. Now, there are a lot of other lessons that I could have been teaching from this, uh, this morning. Maybe I should have been teaching on some of the other lessons more than on politics, but we... It's so rarely taught on that I've emphasized this aspect, but here's what I want to end with saying, at least giving you an insight. Maybe I'll preach on this again. Just look at how David is a type of Christ and the salvation issues there. But let me just give you a heads up here. This is not just talking about civil magistrates on earth. It's pointing to the way to the coming Messiah. Back then he was coming. We've, he's already here who would be the perfect king, and as king of kings would cause his kingship to be more and more manifested in those who rule on the earth as his servants. Okay? Isaiah 9 promises that of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. So it's going to be a slow process. Why does God have Christ's just reign 
stretching out so long, taking so slow. I mean, it's almost like David. Well, David stands as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't always know, but we do know that when God allows the souls of this world to reign, it is for a good reason. It is for a very good reason so that we will be driven back to Christ's grace, back to His Word over and over again. And every one of these points should drive us back to Jesus. Let me just give you a couple samples. Point one, where Samuel failed to bring God's opinions to the people, we can ask God to give us grace, Lord, to make us courageous and bold to bring Your Word into the public arena. Point two, where loyalty to a party has caused us trouble. And I, I'm not supportive of any one party, okay? To me, it's an issue of, is this candidate sufficient before the Lord? I mean, if there was a candidate who was a man after God's own heart, I don't care if he's Democrat, Republican. To me, party is immaterial. In fact, they almost look the same anymore. But point two, where par- loyalty to a party has caused us trouble, we can ask Jesus to take our hearts completely, make us loyal to Him above everything else. That's bringing God's grace into politics. Point three, where magistrates fail to impose them, interpose themselves, we can thank God that Jesus was willing to be the ultimate interposition of our salvation. We can ask Him to continue to bring interposition, His priestly interposition, His kingly interposition, to bear on our country. Because He can come between our country and disaster. Uh, he can rule through magistrates, give them the courage they need. So we need to look at interposition from a Christ-centered perspective. Point four. Where citizens frustrate us by voting for superficial reasons. And I have to admit, I've had to ask God's forgiveness for, for getting so upset sometimes with the idiocy uh, of the public and what they bring in. Uh, but anyway, I have to say, okay, Lord, you're allowing even this for good purposes, to sanctify your church, to purify, to bring discipline. And we can ask God, Lord, give me insight, because I know I can be an idiot sometimes in the decisions I make. And since Jesus enlightens every man who comes in the world, as John chapter 1, we can say, Lord, please open the eyes of people to vote for the right person in this election. You can open their eyes. I have faith that you can do that. Or you can give them the flu to stay home. <laughs> uh, but you can, you can make a change. Point four. Uh, well, excuse me, point five, where fear grips our heart. We can ask God to remove cowardice and let His perfect love cast out fear. I, I think you get the point. You can just go down through those points. And, uh, and, and just see how every point should drive us back to the grace of Jesus, br- back to saying, Lord, I want more of your grace. I want more of your kingdom. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And uh, too many times we don't dig deeply enough into it. We just get a superficial understanding. But I pray across this nation you would open the eyes of your saints to see that your scriptures are sufficient to guide us in every area of life, in economics, in business, in whatever it is that we put our hands to do. Give us a confidence, Father, in the sufficiency of scripture. And I pray, Father, that you would encourage this, your people, as we realize that you have been working all along. You are victoriously advancing your kingdom, even through uh, the enemies who are seeking to oppose you. We thank you that Christ will never be defeated. That if the increase of His uh, kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. That He is building His church so that even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Help us to keep focused on the victory 
of Christ, the mercy of Christ, all of the attributes that uh, you are working in your church by the grace that you plan from eternity past to eternity future. And may you receive the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing a psalm in response at Psalm number 2, which is a prophecy of the reign of King Jesus. Receive the Lord's charge and his blessing. Children of